Welcome Moms for America. I'm Jalene Jackson. I'm the National Vice President for Moms for America. The whole premise of Moms for America is that liberty begins at home. When mama understands the miracles and the stories and the principles of the Constitution, her children, her grandchildren will know and understand and revere them as well. We are so grateful that you're here with us today for our Healing of America seminar. We're in uh, book number two. We're going to do it today, ladies. We're going to dive into the U.S. Constitution. We've got the 4th of July coming up this Sunday. Happy 245th birthday of America, this land of the free and home of the brave that I know we all love so much that was coined in that national anthem all those years ago by Francis Scott Key. Gosh, this week, as I've been watching some of the things in the news, it it feels like to me some people don't love the land of the free and the home of the brave. I was saddened to see the little Olympic athlete that turned her back on the flag this week. Did you notice that? All the Olympic trials are going on now. And I continue to be disappointed in our Supreme Court, uh, not hearing these cases that are really hitting and attacking at the heart of the moral fiber of this nation in that transgender uh, case in Virginia uh, in schools. The uh, Supreme Court uh, didn't take that up. I, I'm, I'm growing to love Justice Alito and Thomas. I'm not sure about our new justices. I'm not sure. But uh, anyways, I think we're going to lose some battles. And when we look at the news and we look around our country, we're losing battles. And I think we knew that. And I certainly know God knows, uh, you know, in these end times, we're going to lose battles. But I think the most important thing, mamas, is that we are in the fight. We are still fighting these battles. Because ultimately, you get enough mamas fighting these battles and standing up. God, what is the promise? He will intervene. And we will win this. And uh, America, this nation shall endure if we keep doing our part. And mamas, you are doing your part. You are here today. This is a summer day. There's a lot of things that could take you uh, away from our uh, class today. But you are here And so that gives me great hope for America and for this nation. So girls, we finished seminar one. We got through our first seminar. We are on to our new book. Can you see that? My light always, the Founders Charter of Freedom. So we're in book number two. So if you are just coming and joining us for the first time today, all the four previous classes. So we're on class number five out of this 16 week series. If you missed any of those first four classes, you can go to momsforamerica.us. They're all uh, have been recorded and you can watch the presentations. And if for some reason you have to miss any of these next four constitution classes, they will all be recorded and they're all online and you can watch them there. So remember uh, the last four classes, we talked about the events and the people that would God would use to establish this land. Joan of Arc, Christopher Columbus, our pilgrims. Then we got into the grievances uh, of of the colonies, these repeated injuries, which would cause Samuel Adams and his sons sons of liberty and others to uh, push for the American Revolutionary War. Samuel Adams, we know, is known as the father of the American Revolution. And then the great genius of Thomas Jefferson to write that 
uh, Declaration of Independence, and then the dark uh, days of the Revolutionary War and the courageous leader of George Washington, my man, George Washington. I can't wait to meet him on the other side someday, he and his Martha. And then, of course, the miracle of the Constitutional Convention that we talked about last week in those dark days when they just couldn't come to agreements and Benjamin Franklin, little 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin got up and implored them that if God is aware of a little sparrow birdie falling out of the tree, don't you know he is aware of these proceedings and we need to turn to him and we need to pray to him and that sobered them out up. And they got the job done and they were able to write that constitution under the hand of James Madison, that he's known James Madison as the father of the constitution. He was the best prepared and really most able leader of that convention that God rose up and he took those copious notes of that convention. So 39 delegates signed the constitution and now the hearts and the minds of this, uh, the states and the people had to be won over. They had to understand this new constitution. And so some articles in the newspaper were written to explain the constitution and they would be known as the Federalist Papers. There's 85 Federalist Papers that explain the proceedings of this uh, constitutional convention and the new government. Alexander Hamilton would write 51 of the 85 Federalist Papers James Madison wrote 26 of those papers and John Jay would write five of them. A year later, 1788, nine of the states ratified that constitution and it was adopted in 1789. And that's when George Washington would be sworn in at Federal Hall in New York City in 1789, put Federal Hall on your bucket list. It's right in the heart of Wall Street there. So a couple years ago, my husband, I think you hear me talk about my husband. He's cute. I like him. We've been married, uh, what, 28 years. He went to a dinner of a couple hundred people uh, and they were patriots. And he um, was traveling with the speaker, um, Glenn Kimber. And Glenn Kimber was speaking and he stood up and he said, how many of you love America? Yeah. How many of you love our founding fathers in the Constitution? Yeah, the crowd said. And then uh, Dr. Kimber said, how many articles and amendments are in the Constitution? A few people piped up. How many amendments did our founding fathers give us? Crickets. No one knew that. So, you know, the question that we pose ourselves when it comes to this country and our founders and this Constitution that they gave us how can we uphold and defend something that we don't really know or understand? And so the next four weeks, I'm gonna give you a working knowledge and understanding of the seven articles and the 27 amendments. So you no longer have to just blindly go along with what the legal scholars on TV are telling you. Now, I have a one page outline of the constitution. It is so helpful. I have carried this crummy little page. I've had to print it off over and over because it gets all crinkled and torn because I just carry it with me. 
but it succinctly in just one line tells you what each article is, what the sections are, what the 10 amendments, the first bill of rights are, and just a couple words explanation. So you know how to find it and then to dig deeper if, if you have a question about the law. This is so helpful, Vivian. Uh, we'll put it on our hot picks. It's online. If you go to view our presentations under seminar, Two, there's a link to this one page printed off. It's a godsend. I've taught my children the Constitution from this little one page outline. It's really helpful, really good. So there is um, there's an acronym that I'm going to tell you about in just a moment uh, that will help you memorize what the seven articles are. We're going to talk about the very first article today, the legislative branch. That's all we're going to discuss today. The U.S. Constitution is, is, is the oldest written national constitution still in use today. We're one of the newer countries. We have the oldest national constitution. Many of the, uh, 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 of the nations of the world saw what transpired under our constitution. And to this day, only three nations in the world do not have a constitution. Our founding fathers truly felt and hoped that our constitution would be our greatest export. And I think they would, have, would be happy to know that it is. So it's the oldest written national constitution. And it's also one of the shortest. It's just about 7,000 words. The, the structure of the Constitution is really straightforward and simple. It just establishes basically the three branches of government, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial. And it, it creates amongst those three branches a system of checks and balances so they can check each other, so they can make sure that one is not uh, a runaway or, or you know, becoming too powerful so that, that there would then be an imbalance in our government. And so that's the whole idea that no one branch dominates. And this system is really what defines American government. We're going to see, however, there is some great imbalances in our country and government to this day. And we're going to talk about how in the world that happened. And we specifically will address that in seminar three. So today is article number one, the legislative branch. Now there's an acronym does this look backwards? Is this backwards to you? No? Okay, okay, thank you, Glory. Glory from Arkansas, Mama from Arkansas, always keeping me straight. So there's this acronym called LEGSASAR. And if you count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it's seven letters, and each letter stands for one of the um, uh, articles. So the first article in the Constitution is legislative, executive, judicial, states' rights how to amend the constitution through supremacy clause and the ratification um, article. And so on that one page outline that I will give you, it, it talks about this legislature, but if you can remember that acronym, you will know the seven articles in the constitution. So we're going to talk about the first article today, the legislative branch that Congress established even before they established the presidency which is the second article, they wanted that legislative branch to be the first article in the constitution because they wanted that to be preeminent in the American government because the power was going to be derived from the voice of the people. Okay, girls, are we ready? Do we have our books? Now, remember that the books are fill in the blank. So hopefully you've been able to 
fill in the section one this week. If not, you can try and fill it in while I'm speaking. I go a little fast. The key is at the, the back of the book. If you're ever wondering, well, how am I supposed to know the answers to the book? The key is in the, in the back of the book. So here we go. Section one, strap yourself in. We're going to go through something uh, that some will study. It will take a whole semester or a year or three years of law school to really understand. But I'm going to teach you enough, enough to get you going to understand the basic premise of article number one. So I would say that most people today who live in America don't really have the slightest idea how our founding fathers arrived at the formula of this constitutional government that we live under and why it has been so successful. Really under the, about the first 150 years living under the constitution and these economic uh, uh, principles of uh, economic prosperity that our founders gave us, we went from only having 6% of the world's population only 7% of the world's land mass, but yet we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth in the early 1900s. And that, that got the attention of other nations around this world. So some of those people, citizens are elected into office. And I know, you know, a lot of our elected leaders are well-meaning and patriotic, but I bet you most of them are lacking in their understanding of the, of the founder's wisdom as well, because they really never had the opportunity in school or didn't take the opportunity to, to study the political philosophy and the concepts of prosperity economics that our founders gave us. So the next four lessons that we're going to have on the Constitution is going to highlight the founders formula for a free and prosperous America. Now, as we go through this, I'm going to go through some of these points quickly. You might go, oh, I, I have some questions about what Julian said. Mamas, if I could recommend, you know, I'm always recommending ways to build your Library of Congress, but there's a book here called The Making of America, and it introduces the Constitution clause by clause explanation from our founding fathers. And it's in their words, what they meant when they wrote clause by clause, every article, every paragraph, every clause, every section has commentary, their, their words on what they meant, what they meant when they gave us certain points of the constitution. Just last night, I had a question for my husband and he said, he's in Oregon right now in travel. And he said, Julini, let me look at my, um, my book here and then we can talk about it. So I would really recommend it's $29. You can get it from the National Center for Constitutional Studies, the nccs.net um, for $29. You can also get this in the student edition where you do the fill in the blank. My cottage meeting that I um, uh, taught for two years in Utah, it took us two years the cottage meeting is still going on for 10 years, but for two years, we went through this line by line making of America. So um, anyways, you can get it from the tjc.com, uh, the student edition where you fill in the blanks, or you could get this book from the National Center for Constitutional Studies. So if there's questions that you have, you would just go to, you know, whatever article, whatever section and read for yourself it's quote after quote from those that were at the convention, what they meant when they put certain things in the constitution. It's a great resource to have. And I, I recommend you getting it. So the very first part of the constitution is our preamble. And the preamble just basically uh, tells us, reminds us 
what the benefits of living in the United States is. And it just gives you a little overview of the constitution. I would really recommend memorizing the preamble. We have um, cute little hand motions in the back of the book that show you how you can teach this to your children. Now, my little 13 year old, every single morning uh, in our little devotional, we, we study the Bible a little bit. I read her a little story out of the story Bible. And I will show this book later when I talk about how to teach your children the constitution. I love this little book here. And then we, um, uh, then I teach, I teach her from a little book called the strength of youth from my church on little standards, you know, that I, I, I would like her to understand and live. And then I, she, we read a little principle out of the 5,000 year leap. This is all in her little devotional. She's eating her oatmeal and she's listening to mama talk and we're having a little uh, devotional. And, and then um, we, she, she uh, memorizes, she tells me that the um, preamble and so I'm going to show you what these, these little hand motions, but she did the hand motions for the longest time. Now she's thinking they're a little silly, but the hand motions really work. We, the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, like the scales of justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty, like Lady Liberty, Statue of Liberty, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. We do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. And that is how I have taught my children the preamble. <laughs> and I bet, I bet they could still do those little hand motions. So that's something fun that you can do with your children and grandchildren. Now, the whole purpose of this constitution was really just to guide our legislators, to guide the courts, and to remind us, US citizens, uh, what our constitutional rights and privileges are. It's a wonderful, succinct introduction. And um, I, I recommend you spend a little time getting that in your, in your brain. So the article number one has 10 sections. It's the largest section out of the seven articles in the constitution. So each section has paragraphs and those paragraphs are called clauses. So you would go article one, section one, and then if there's four paragraphs under section one each, of those paragraphs would be called clause one, clause two, clause three, clause four. So that's how it's noted in legal briefings when you try and find the source of, of, of where something is said in the constitution. So the article, then there's 10 sections in article one and under every section, there is a number of paragraphs and those numbers of paragraphs are called clauses. So the first section says that all legislative powers are granted and vested in the Congress, which consists of a Senate and a House, and that the people do not have to be subject to any federal law unless it has been approved by the majority of the people's representatives that they have voted on. Now, that is not the case today. Our, our founders were not living by this because gradually over time, especially in the last hundred years, the executive and the judicial branches began to usurp this authority. 
And now we know that the executive branch has over 500 administrative agencies that are making uh, administrative law that has not been vetted by our elected officials. Now, how in the world did that happen? We're gonna talk about that next week when we talk about the um, executive branch and how the executive branch has become way more powerful than it was meant to and how the, the legislative branch has actually advocated, ad, advocated, abdicated, there we go, some of its powers to these other two branches. And so um, interest, interesting, I find that first section. Now the second section just talks about the structure of the House of Representatives. So um, our members of Congress, the House of Representatives and our senators, have House members are elected every two years. And it says there in section two that the states were to decide who was able to vote in their states. So it's interesting, 100 years ago in 1920, we passed the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. But from the very jump, from the very get-go in 1787, our constitution said, look, states determine who votes in your state. Did you know over 20 states, women were already voting before that 19th Amendment was passed, 50 years before th that 19th Amendment in uh, 1920 was passed. Uh, Wyoming and Utah were the first to have women vote in 1870. And so it's interesting, they felt they needed to pass an amendment to give women the right to vote when 20 states were already having women the right to vote. So all these additional amendments that tell states what they can and cannot do takes away from what the founders intended. They intended the states to be the preeminent power and for the federal government to have limited um, powers. And so anyway, so there you go. The states are to determine who can vote. Now, to be a member of the House of Representatives, you have to be 25 years old and you have to have lived in that state for seven years. So the youngest member of the House of Representatives today is uh, Madison Cawthorn. Have you heard of him? He's from North Carolina. He's the young man in the wheelchair. He's the youngest member in modern history. And he was just sworn in last January. I heard him speak in person on January 6th, I was there in front of the White House and he was wonderful young man, he's single and he is bright and he is powerful and he navigates that wheelchair. You, you almost don't even know he's in a wheelchair. The oldest member of the house today is out of Alaska. Does anyone know who representative Don Young is? He is 88 years old, bless his heart. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if that's really what the founders intended us to make a lifetime career. Uh, and, and actually, I don't think Mr. Young, because he's only served for 25 years, but we're going to talk about some of these House of members of Congress who have made it their lifetime career. Uh, we have our President Joe Biden with us served for 47 years. And, uh, and so that, that's interesting. So a census is taken every 10 years. We know the census. And, um, and this is how we determine how representation would be apportioned amongst the states. And, and so it, um, when the country was first founded, each representative represented about 30,000 citizens. But by 1929, the House had grown so large up to 435 House members that there was a law passed that it couldn't go beyond 435 House members. And so today, each House 
member. There's, I think there's seven or eight members of the house in the state of Maryland that I live. So each state has a different amount of house members, depending on what your uh, uh, population in your state is. But each house member on average um, House of Representatives represents about 700,000 citizens today. And so the House in Section 2, uh, the House of Representatives are the ones that initiate impeachment proceedings um, for officers and uh, the president. And we have seen this most recently in our lifetime. We've seen President Clinton was impeached by the House in 1998. Now, it just takes a simple majority uh, half of the House members plus one in order to impeach a president. So President Trump was impeached in 2019 by the House and also in 2020. But in order to actually be removed from office, you have to be acquitted by the Senate to be removed. And you need a super majority in the Senate to remove a president. So that's about 66, 67 senators in order to remove. And there was not enough senators to remove President Clinton. And there was not enough senators to remove President Trump when he was impeached um, twice in 2019 and 2020. And so the lower house The House of Representatives makes the accusation of wrongdoing with the intent of removing a president, but it is the Senate, the upper house, that actually conducts this trial. So section three talks about the structure of the Senate, okay? Remember, the senators are in for six years, and they must have lived in the state that they represent for nine years. Now, when Thomas Jefferson, he was overseas when the constitution was written and he came back and he talked to George Washington about this. He said, why are the senators in for six years and the house members in for two? And George Washington explained to Thomas Jefferson, it's kind of like when you pour hot tea into a tea, into a saucer and you let it cool that hot tea. He said, the Senate is like that second chamber that cools off the first chamber, kind of like let's let cooler heads prevail. Remember, the House is the wing of compassion. They're only in two years, so they want to solve problems quick. They want to get programs, money and solve problems so they can get reelected, whereas the House was supposed to be six years and they were that that wing of resources. They were the senators are supposed to ask, wait a minute can we afford this? Is this really necessary? Does this infringe upon the rights of our state? They were kind of let cooler heads prevail and really question all the things that the House members want to to, uh, have done. And so every two years, one third of the Senate is reelected, thereby leaving two thirds of the Senate intact in order to maintain kind of a continuity uh, in the government. And um, in the Senate, they don't, they don't have a presiding officer. It's always the vice president. So like we have a speaker of the house in the house. Well, the, we have a majority leader, but he's not the presiding officer in the Senate. The, the presiding officer is the vice president. And, and, and so that vice president can cast the deciding vote if, if there's a tie. Um, so we don't ordinarily think of the Senate as a judicial body, but the Senate does have exclusive responsibility in determining guilt when it comes to impeachment. So if the president, it says in section three, if the president is impeached, 
the chief justice must preside over the hearing. Now, it was so interesting in uh, January when President Trump was impeached again in 2020, Judge Roberts, the chief justice, according to the the constitution, he was supposed to preside over that uh, judicial proceedings, but he refused to do that because he knew it was unconstitutional because Trump was not a sitting president at that point. He had lost the election. And so it was interesting that the chief justice did not sit in on that judicial um, proceeding because he knew it wasn't constitutional. And they had uh, the charges were they were inciting President Trump for insurrection because of the January 6th event. But um, anyway, so constitutionally, they really weren't really supposed to do what they did. And so we see that with the chief justice not participating in that. And clearly they didn't have the votes to remove uh, President Trump in January. So maybe it was just for a show of disdain. Uh, you know, sometimes that's what members of Congress do, even though they have, they know that there's no way bills will be passed, but they, they put it down on the floor and they rant and rave or they, you know, have these impeachment proceedings knowing that there's no way that these presidents can ever be removed because they don't have the votes or in this case, wasn't even constitutional. Okay, so section four, are you keeping up with me, girls? I know I'm just clicking away here. Section four of article one, remember there's 10 article or 10 sections in article one. In section four, it talks about uh, how Congress can determine when the dates are for elections and when to convene each year. Uh, When the constitution was first written, they didn't stay in um, session, Congress didn't stay in session year round like they do today. Their Congress is in session year round and they just have some recesses in the summer and time off for holidays. But originally it says there that Congress would meet the first Monday in December so that they could get, have enough time to prepare for the president's inauguration on March 4th. So presidents used to be inaugurated on March 4th, but the 20th amendment, um, came around and they changed that in 1933. The 20th Amendment changed March 4th to the 3rd of January uh, when Congress would uh, meet back and when the president would be inaugurated, they changed it to January 20th. Ooh, right in the dead of the winter. If you've ever been in Washington, D.C. on January 20th, it is cold out there. You have to really love your new president to show up to the inauguration in front of the Capitol. Now, why did they why did they move that up uh, by two months? Because I know many people in this last election really wish that we had an additional two months uh, to to um, investigate the claims of uh, fraudulent elections. Uh, back in the day, uh, they they gave almost a four month period from when a president was elected to when he was inaugurated because oftentimes they had to make come to Washington DC on a horse and a buggy and had to shut down their little affairs or take the train. But in modern times with modern travel and communication, they just didn't feel that delay was necessary and it wasn't worth having a four month period of a lame duck president. So they now swear the president in on January 20th. I heard all kind of conspiratorial um, reasons uh, why we moved it from March 4th to January 20th. Uh, but that that is um, the reason uh, 
before that, those dates. So section five of article one talks about just the rules of order, the internal operations of Congress, what makes a majority. Section six talks about compensation for congressmen. Now, the delegates were supposed who were supposed to participate in the Constitutional Convention last week, remember, had to come up of how they were going to get there with their own money because the states didn't provide for any expenses or, or compensation. And so the founders at the time they wrote the Constitution, they decided that the House members and Senate members would be paid out of the U.S. Treasury just in case, you know, the states didn't have the money or didn't want to pay uh, the members of Congress. And so the current salary for um, a member of Congress uh, is $174,000. And that current salary has, um, hasn't changed since 2009. They've not had a raise in about 12, 13 years. Now, $174,000 is a lot of money, but I'm gonna be honest with you, to, to live in Washington, DC, and they have to maintain their house in the state that they represent, and they also have to live in Washington, DC. So they do uh, get some benefits uh, and, and the leadership of the House and the Senate actually get about 50,000 more. So Nancy Pelosi gets 224,000 a year uh, as, as well as the House um, um, or the majority leader in the Senate and some of the, those in leadership. So that salary is really comparable probably in the private sector to maybe a mid-level executive or a ma um, manager today. I have known members of Congress that, you know, don't bring wealth to Washington, D.C. And so they actually live in their offices and they use the shower facilities in the gym or they rent a townhouse with five other <laughs> members of Congress. So they're not a lot of them are not living high off the hog. Uh, they make, there's a law that was passed called the Ethics and Government Act of 1978 that um, strictly monitors the money and it, it's to help prevent maybe bribes and corruption um, amongst our politicians. So our members can only earn 15% above their congressional um, salary. Uh, and that might, I don't know how, how they, maybe they would, I don't, maybe a speaker's fee, although I don't really think that they, they get paid for speaking. So, so maybe from an existing business that they have, they can only earn 15% beyond their, their salary. However, there is an unearned income that is not subject to this 15% rule. So they can earn additional incomes through stocks and interests and in, in dividends and also royalties from books. But I do think it's interesting that some of these politicians who have made a career of serving back in Washington, D.C., think of uh, maybe Maxine Waters out of California. She has spent her entire life in politics, making $174,000 a year, but she owns a $4.3 million house in one of the wealthiest areas of Los Angeles. And even think of President Biden, 47 years in Congress. I mean, he really came, he was a middle-class man, came from humble beginnings, but he owns two multi-million dollar homes uh, in, um, in Delaware, uh, one at the beach and one um, in Delaware. And so you can definitely see how some of these career politicians who have served in office many, many years 
have profited from their political connection. And you even look at presidents, they come into office, President Biden's net worth when he came into office was 1.3 million. And after eight years as president, he left with a net worth of 40 million. Uh, the only president in recent time that actually his net worth declined was our recent president, Donald Trump, where he lost 31% of his wealth. He was $1.4 billion poor after he left um, office. And it's interesting, President Trump, he did what George Washington and a few other presidents throughout history, he donated his entire paycheck the president makes $400,000. He donated his entire paycheck uh, to each month to different um, uh, groups, veterans groups, national parks, Department of Education, that kind of thing. So it's interesting. Our founders didn't intend for these men and women who serve in office to become wealthy over this. And, and some have as they've stayed here long and, and using the connections that they have. So anyways, that is the compensation. Section number seven talks about how a bill becomes a law. And you know that wonderful, remember Saturday morning cartoons when you were a kid or your kids were watching the Schoolhouse Rock videos, I'm only a bill on Capitol Hill. You know that cute little cartoon. So I pulled it up last night and watched it because that pretty much now, that pretty much explains how a bill becomes a law. It's only three minutes. I have shown that little three minute cartoon to my children in my little morning devotional when I've been trying to teach them how a bill becomes a law. But the spending bills are initiated in the House, but a bill can really be introduced in the House or the Senate, and then it goes to a committee and it can die in a committee unless they have enough support uh, amongst the committee to get it out of committee. And then it goes to the floor for the discussion uh, in, in the House or the Senate, and then they vote on it. And um, if it's passed, then it goes to the other House and um, where it goes through that same process, it goes through the committee. And if they make some changes from what the other house had sent over, then, then that bill has to go back over to the other house until um, the bill is modified and the, uh, the modified bill is approved both in the house and the Senate. And then they have to be identical. And then they send that um, bill to the president and he has 10 days to sign it in to law. Um, and if he doesn't take action on that bill, then it automatically goes into law. Now, if he vetoes the bill and it goes back to the House and the Senate, if two thirds of the House, 287 members and two thirds of the Senate, 66 senators um, uh, vote on it, that he, they can override that veto of the president, but it takes two thirds of the House and the Senate to override the veto of a president. So you can see that it is a slow and deliberate process. The founders meant for it to be. They wanted it to take a lot of time and effort as they shepherd a bill through the legislative process. So we got good quality bills. Our, the principle uh, of freedom in principle number 22 in the 5,000 year leap says that the free people should be governed by the rule of law, not by the whims of men. So they wanted this process to be kind of meticulous to make sure that we got quality legislation. Okay, section eight of article one, remember there's 10 sections in article one, section eight is the largest section in the constitution. And this tells what the 20 enumerated powers are of Congress. This tells us what 
the members of Congress are um, have the authorization and the stewardship to be involved with. Now, remember in 1776, when we, you know, declared our independence from England, we were working under this weak Articles of Confederation, and they didn't give enough authority to Congress in order for them to really perform their functions. And so as a result, we almost lost the, uh, the Revolutionary War. So it's interesting now what they were going to actually give power to these members of, of uh, Congress, um, uh, what they were willing, the states were willing to delegate to the federal government. So here we go. We're going to go through these 20 specific jobs or powers that they, the states uh, wanted to give to their members of Congress and the government. Number one, Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes. They wanted these taxes to be uniform, uniform taxes. That means fair taxes. Uh, ben Carson, I like what he said. A uniform tax is like a tithing. Tithing is uniform in its, in, in its assessment. So whether you make a lot of money or a little money in the Bible, where does it say that in Malachi? 10% is a uniform fair tax. Uh, and so this is what the founders intended. They also um, wanted Congress to be able to pay, raise uh, uh, monies to pay for the military because they didn't do that during the Revolutionary War. They also, um, this clause, there's a general welfare clause in connection with taxing power. Uh, the clause states that revenues can only be expended for the general welfare of the whole nation. They didn't want money spent for individuals or special groups or particular geographic regions, because that wouldn't be fair. They, if they were gonna spend money, they wanted the whole nation as a whole to benefit from that. And this clause was designed by the founders to be a limitation on the taxing powers of Congress. However, at this time uh, in the early founding of our country, Alexander Hamilton, remember we talked about Alexander Hamilton, the Secretary of Treasury under uh, George Washington. He actually wanted this general welfare clause to be a grant of powers which would allow uh, Congress to tax and spend for any good cause in this country. Um, and whether it be for local or special or general welfare. Now, he never presented this idea in the Constitutional Convention because it would have been immediately rejected because that torpedoes the whole idea of limited government if you just tell Congress that they can <laughs> spend money for whatever they think is you know, going to benefit the country. And Hamilton was immediately opposed by Jefferson and Madison uh, when he talked about, you know, this general welfare clause, let's just give Congress the power to do whatever is necessary, you know, to, to run the country. Because the founders um, knew that having the national government carry out this assignment in ways uh, that they wanted to, to benefit the nation as a whole, not, not special groups or special regions. So the, the founders, this intent was was pretty much held and uh, prevailed until 1916 when the Supreme Court virtually amended the Constitution by an opinion in the Butler case that was um, brought forth in 1936. In the back of the book, there's a really good explanation of what that Butler case was and what it did uh, to this idea of the general welfare. Congress can spend whatever they need to to take care of special groups in, in the country. 
And so essentially Hamilton's doctrine of taxing and spending for any cause is what the Butler case gave us 150 years later in 1936. And what it did is it opened the floodgates for the treasury now to virtually kind of politically loot, you know, and to directly, and we'll talk about this, the 16th amendment in 1913 uh, gave the power of the federal government to go in now and to directly tax us with the federal tax, which was, which is not a uniform tax because that federal tax had a graduated income scale. So if you made more, you are taxed more if you made less. And essentially it made the income of wealthy less sacred. And that violates the 14th amendment, which talks about the equal protection clause because the wealth of of more wealthy people is less sacred because more money is taxed from them. And so um, we will talk about that 16th amendment and how it it gave um, power to the federal government, expanded it because it gave them the authority now to go in and amass great amounts of wealth by taxing people directly instead of having this uniform tax. Now, how the government got their, their monies uh, under the constitution that our founders gave us was if, if Maryland made up 20% of the population of America, we were responsible for 20% of the federal budget. And so the governor and the state was, they were the ones to determine how should we tax our people to come up with our allotment for the federal, uh, our payment for the federal budget um, um, uh, for this country. And so it gave the states the ability to determine how they were gonna tax their people to come up with their, their amount. And, um, and so anyways, that all changed when the 16th Amendment was passed in 1913. And we will talk about really the ramifications that have come from that. Okay, the second uh, power and responsibility that members of Congress have is to borrow money. Congress shall have power to borrow money on the credit of the United States. Now, credit is defined as a trust in one's integrity in money matters and, and, and one's ability to fulfill financial obligations. Now there are two factors that seriously damage the credit of the government. That is maintaining excessive debt. When we have excessive debt, it results in higher taxes and oppressive taxes because we gotta pay the debt. We gotta at least pay the interest on the debt. And it causes us to have unstable uh, currency due to inflation because prices now rise and it erodes our purchasing power. So the interest on our debt alone is going to exceed the national defense budget in just a few years, which is $700 billion, $750 billion a year. So the more money that we print, the less value the dollar has. And we're seeing inflation kick in right now because we're spending. We're, what did, were there three rounds of stimulus checks in the last... Uh, six months. I was just in Idaho a few days ago talking to my little sister and she said, Jeline, starting this month in July, I'm going to get $600 a month. It's called the child tax credit until the end of the year for six months. I'll get about $550. So starting this month, 86% of all households that have children are going to receive an additional child tax credit. 
for every child, it's about $250 to $300 that the government is going to give them because President Biden said, we just want you to know that we're here for you. So the problem is, I know it seems like a compassionate thing to do, but Thomas Jefferson said, to borrow against the next generation is indecent and immoral. That's what Thomas Jefferson did. And so what we're seeing now, because we've given so much money out in, in the means of these kind of stimulus packages that are still ongoing, and we're seeing it with unemployment too, people don't want to go back to work because they make as much money on unemployment. What we're seeing is prices are rising. I mean, you go to Costco last month and something was $9.99 and now it's $13.99. We're seeing gas prices go up, are we not? We're seeing house prices go up, cost of lumber. We rented a car a few days ago. It was almost double what we you know, uh, had paid a few months earlier just to rent a car. Groceries are going up. And so this is what's happening when we're irresponsible about... Um, uh, borrowing money because someone has to pay for it. The 27th principle in the 5,000 year leap says the burden of debt is, is as destructive to human freedom as is subjugation by conquest. I mean, being in bondage to debt is as bad as, you know, someone coming over and attacking our country is, is what we're saying. And we're, we're, I, I worry about, you know, the future of our children uh, that are going to assume just a horrendous, almost unfathomable amount of, of debt. Um, okay, number three, the third power is uh, the power to regulate commerce. Now, the Commerce Clause was one of the three compromises. There was only three compromises at that constitutional convention. Remember, slavery, representation, and this Commerce Clause. It says in uh, um, Clause number three under uh, Section 8 that Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the states. We have taken that to mean within the states in uh, the recent decades. Um, in the beginning, the regulation of interstate commerce was one of them has become this this clause has become one of the most distorted and it abused provisions of the entire constitution because the, the founders gave it to us because they just wanted to ensure the free flow of trade amongst the states because some of the southern states were saying we're not going to sell the northern states our cotton or some of our textiles or goods and that 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 caused a problem amongst the northern states so the northern states said that this was the compromise we'll give you 20 years to phase out slavery south if you will let the federal government uh, regulate commerce um, amongst the states so that we all have fair and equal access to goods and textiles and, and um, that kind of thing. But over the years, that's, this clause has been expanded and Congress now it has used it to actually regulate the national economy. Um, and this happened through a series of Supreme Court decisions in the last several decades, starting with the New Deal as, as the government got bigger. Uh, they allowed for the government to, to actually dip into the states and tell businesses how to, what they could and could not do. And, and we saw this Commerce Clause was violated under Obamacare, where uh, under Obamacare, businesses and individuals were forced to purchase 
health insurance. And they took this to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court did rule that this was unconstitutional, that, uh, you know, the Congress is supposed to regulate commerce amongst the states, but they're not actually supposed to dip in and tell you businesses and individuals what they can and cannot do and buy. But we see this happening today, just today, you know, I get, I read the headlines or try and read two papers a day in the Wall Street Journal, it says, Biden plans executive order to rein in big business power. Look, this isn't even his responsibility. This is the members of Congress responsibility. But now Biden is actually going to bypass Congress and issue an executive order to tell uh, big businesses. So it makes them sound like they're evil. But as you read the article, you realize that, you know, it's 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 the businesses that that he he doesn't. <laughs> Like, and so this is this right here is a this headline is not uh, uh, consistent with what our founding fathers intended with this commerce clause. So we see it, we we just have allowed it to happen. Um, we have that administrative agency called OSHA that um, is the occupational and and safe and health guidelines for businesses. They can come in and they can shut down a business any day of the week. And it's been devastating and costly, some of these regulations that have come forth under this Commerce Clause uh, uh, to small businesses, and especially some of the regulations and the, and the rules that small businesses had to adhere to this last year under COVID has been devastating, as we've seen businesses right before our eyes, uh, small businesses vanish. And so um, this Commerce Clause is, is not really operating the way the founders intended it to be amongst the states, not within the states. Okay, power number four, Congress can establish rules of naturalization, immigration, how to become a citizen. They establish rules of bankruptcy, power five, power six. Congress can coin money and regulate their value. We have strayed from this uh, in 1913 when we um, formed the Federal Reserve um, and we began to move off the, the gold and silver standard that it talks about in power six. And we will talk about that in seminar three. How in the world did we allow that to happen, Congress? And a lot of the times Congress, I'm having a hard time saying that word today, abdicated <laughs> their, their powers to these agencies and these other branches of, of government. And, um, and maybe these members of Congress were not steeped in what the founders intended and it has caused a great imbalance in our government to this day. So we'll talk about that in seminar three. Power seven, they can fix the standards of weight and measure. So they determine what is a pound, what is a gallon, what is a mile, because during the revolutionary war, there was fraudulent representation in weights. So uh, they gave Congress that responsibility to make sure that there's a standard for weights and measures. Power number six, they can provide a punishment for counterfeiting. Power number nine, they can establish post office and roads. Power number 10, they can grant copyrights and patents. Number seven, or power number 11, these are powers, responsibilities of members of Congress to establish federal courts, lower courts. We're going to talk about the court system next week when we talk about the third article, the judicial article. Power number 12, they can punish piracies on the high seas, felonies and offenses against nations. Uh, number 13, they, Congress, are the ones to declare war, not the president. 
And um, Congress has the authority to declare war. Two of the biggest mistakes this nation has ever made was sending hundreds of thousands of youth into the Korean War and the Vietnamese conflict um, without a declaration of war by Congress. Because what it did is it allowed the president to keep these uh, wars going, even though they weren't declared wars, uh, because of commitments with other nations and the United Nations. And that kind of flies in the face of what George Washington said, that we shouldn't be entangled in um, entangling alliances. And, and it just gave the president more power to, to drag you know, these wars out because Congress didn't declare war, but Congress are the ones to declare war. Power 14, they can establish rules dealing with captures on land or seas. 15, they are the ones that raise and support and fund the armies. Um, and they raise and maintain the Navy. They pay for this. Every two years, they re-up the budget for the military because they, they did this, uh, in order to prevent a president from building up a large standing army during peacetime and maybe seizing and holding power permanently. So every two years they have to approve the military budget, even though obviously it's clearly important that we have the military in peacetime or else it might invite sneak attacks. Power 17, it is Congress that calls up state militias to protect citizens. It's not um, the president's. And uh, Congress, rather than the president, has the power to call up the militias of various states. And, and they can do that for three reasons, to suppress an insurrection, to repel an invasion, maybe like our, if our borders are being invaded, they can call it the National Guard Congress, and to execute the laws of the United States. Now, a governor can call up the National Guard in their state if, if there's like a flood or search and rescue or rioting. But um, it, it is Congress that calls up for the nation. So it was Congress when President Biden was sworn in and inaugurated in January, there was 25,000 military men, National Guardsmen in Washington, DC. It was more soldiers in Washington, DC in January than we had in Afghanistan and Iraq combined. Isn't that interesting? That wasn't the president's doing that was Congress. Now the president can require states or Congress to grant him a waiver and, and to empower troops under his command, but they have to give him a, a waiver called the posse comitatus to give him permission. And, and then Congress then pays for that activation. And so power number 18, the, um, uh, there to have authority over the place of the seat of government. That meant they wanted that 10 mile radius of Washington DC to be a neutral non-political territory. <laughs> now I live in Washington DC. I live a half a mile from Washington DC. So I, I, I actually feel like I'm more part of DC than Maryland. And in 1916, they passed uh, the 20, the Congress, um, um, passed the 23rd Amendment. And what it did is it gave Washington, D.C. three electoral votes, which is completely contrary to what our founders intended because um, it deteriorated this protective provision of having this 10-mile Washington, D.C. be a political neutral zone. Now, Washington, D.C., I think, is one of the most politically charged places to live. The mayor, Muriel Bowser, and the city 
board, they are the most liberal body of governing people in a, in a city I've ever seen. In the 20 years I've lived in Washington, D.C., I've never seen not one Republican sit on the city council or be a mayor. So this definitely went against what the founders intended uh, with the 23rd Amendment, really revoking or superseding this um, this power number 18. Okay, power number 19. Give me, give me about five, seven more minutes, ladies. We're, we're cruising through this. So power number 19 says that members of Congress can establish federal lands within a state. So they're saying that new states that were coming into the union um, could be purchased by the consent uh, uh, of the government. What I'm saying is parts of um, the states could be federal land but the purposes for the federal land to hold property in these states would be to erect forts, uh, magazines and ar arsenals for dockyards or for other needful buildings such as post offices. So what happened as the Western states began to come into the union is this, this provision here, this power was ignored. And the federal government began to unconstitutionally withhold vast sections of states. So like think of Alaska today, 96% of the land in Alaska is really unconstitutionally held by the federal government. Alaska is only operating their state under 4%. They only have control of 4% of their land. Look at some of these Western states, Colorado, 45% of that land is owned by the federal government. Idaho, 64%, Nevada, 87% of their lands are held by the federal government, Utah, 66%. So these, these um, states that came in uh, in the Western states really have unequal access to their lands and their resources. Now, Imagine if the federal government would just sell some of these lands in California and these states, if we sold them back to the states, imagine how we could decrease the federal deficit and actually benefit the economy of those states. They could imagine what the state could do with those lands that are being held up. And so in the Northwest Ordinance in, in uh, 1787, uh, that was adopted by Congress way back when the, when the Constitution was written. It said that all new states were to come in on unequal footing. And, you know, that's not the case. If you look at Nebraska, they own all their land except 1%. Massachusetts owns all their land except 1%. And so this is why you always see these Western states in courts trying to get back control of some of these federally held lands here. And finally, the, their last power is to do whatever is necessary so they can execute these 20 enumerated powers. Some scholars think that this clause is the most important provision in the Constitution because it makes it a living constitution. But some people call this power the elastic clause because they use it to stretch the federal powers to do things that maybe are beyond their legitimate um, dimensions of these 20 powers. So, you know, if you do say that this makes the constitution a living constitution, many will, I've heard them say, well, if it's a living document, why are you trying to kill it then as you misinterpret it and change it and discount, you know, the original intent of the founders? So, so this 20th power has been um, uh, mis misused and, and abused. 
So it's important to remember that the delegates in the Constitutional Convention were there to represent the interest of their states, and they undertook with real a care to restrict the National Congress in certain ways. Now, this had never been done because all the national legislatures, including England's parliament, had always considered themselves the supreme and unrestricted powers in lawmaking. But here with our constitution, they were actually trying to just give them very few and limited powers and restrain them with constitutional restrictions. Section nine and 10 talks about the powers that were going to, they were specifically going to deny uh, Congress. And the first one is the slavery issue. This is so interesting because um, it says here in section nine, they were going to give America, particularly the Southern states, 20 years to phase out the immigration of slavery, that which practice was really had been so entrenched for almost 200 years. They wanted to stop the slave trade. And it was really the consensus of all the founders that slavery was on its way out in 1787 when the constitution was written. And only one out of every 17 white households in the South owned slaves. But slaves, because since slaves were considered property, they were mortgaged to the European uh, uh, loans that many of these farmers, most of these um, farmers in the South had. And so to free the slaves would have resulted, put the, the, the South in economic peril. And so they said, okay, we're gonna give you 20 years to come up with another plan to, to you know, run your business without slaves. So, the, and, and, and because of, of um, they had to make this compromise because three states, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia were actually threatening to secede from the union unless they were allowed these 20 years to, to prepare to phase out slavery. And so, uh, you know, the other uh, 10 states decided that it was best to do that, just to keep the, I mean, they had a hard time even getting the states to show up to the Constitutional Convention. So their first priority was nation building. How can we keep these independent 13 colonies together? And so they gave them uh, this compromise. I've, I've recommended before, but my husband gives a really uh, excellent one hour presentation on the founders and slavery and dispelling the smear campaign that was waged against the founding fathers and how this three-fourths clause in this first article has been misconstrued and twisted to, to mean that the founders only intended slaves uh, to be three-fifths three of a person. And that is not the case at all. They were not placing value on human life by the three-fourths clause. It was for the purpose of representation. So the founding fathers devised this counting method to limit the power of the South uh, so that they can ensure that eventually slavery would be abolished. Because what was happening in 1719, the slaves in South Carolina, there was only there was 77% of the white population. But 70 years later, uh, there was more of a majority of a black population. There was 412,000 black citizens versus 290 white. And so what that could have potentially done is increase the representation in the house. Uh, uh, because of the population in these southern states, and they could have ensured slavery. And so um, uh, this is this is why they where this three fourths clause came from. 
it's interesting, mamas, to know that the word slave is never mentioned by the founders in the constitution. It was a bone of contention since our founding because they only wanted to tolerate uh, slavery temporarily uh, for the sake of just creating this republic. The only time slavery is mentioned in the constitution is in the 13th amendment after Abraham Lincoln when they abolished slavery after the civil war. So I would really recommend going to the thomasjeffersoncenter.com and up comes, I think Al is right there. My husband's black. So if you see a black man, click on, and it's just an hour presentation. It's, it's fascinating as he explains this clause uh, of slavery, why they allowed slavery to exist um, uh, at, at the time. Um, most people just don't type, take the time and energy to really study this out. And they just jump to conclusions and, you know, uh, assume that our founders were, you know, hypocrites and racists and degenerates and, you know, all, all these things that uh, have been hurled against our founders. So we don't study them. So we don't revere them, you know. And um, so anyways, clause three and four under section nine talks about we always have to have a right to trial by jury for criminals and we can't change uh, uh, the, the laws when it comes to criminals and retroactively punish them. These were all things that they were subjected to under England. So they were sensitive about protecting people that were accused of crimes. And section four talks about the taxes, how the federal government could tax people, um, that it would be through the states. Remember, if you hold 3% of the population, the states are responsible for 3% of the, the budget. And this um, was completely destroyed this provision when the 16th amendment was passed in 1913. Okay, and then section 10 talks about some of the restrictions on states, they can't coin money, they can't um, enter into treaties, states can't grant titles of nobility. I'll let you kind of read through those. So girls, we did it. Ooh, I always feel like I'm looking for my cool glass of lemonade or something when I finish teaching some of these classes on the constitution. I gave you a lot girls. And if your head is spinning a little, that's okay. You, you now know probably more about article one than most people in the United States of America. I really want you to get this one page, this one page outline. This is what in this succinct little section, it tells you what we talked about this last hour. And so we discussed the 20 powers that were assigned to the federal government, uh, to the members of Congress by the states. And we talked about some of the things that were fit, forbidden by Congress and forbidden by the states to do. And a lot of the things that Congress uh, is not doing anymore, it's because they turned over the reins and gave those powers to the executive branch and the judicial branch. And that's what we're gonna talk about next week. The next two articles, article two, executive and article three, judiciary. And then the third week, we're gonna talk about articles four through seven and the first 10 amendments, which are known as the Bill of Rights. That's what our founding fathers gave us. And they also gave us amendments 11 and 12, just in case anyone ever asked you. It's a trick question. They gave us 10 amendments, but they also gave us 11 and 12. So they gave us 12 amendments, our founders. And then the fourth week, we're going to talk about amendments 11 through 27. And most of those um, uh, amendments came after our founders and a lot of them 
several of them are very uninspired amendments and have really wreaked havoc uh, with our balance of power. And we'll talk about that. So I want you to know, girls, we really did go through this in record speed. So I just want you to recommend getting this at some point because when you have a question, you go right to the source. What did that founder mean clause by clause? Their explanation of every founder that weighed in on each clause is their exact quotation. And, and so you'll know exactly what they meant. I also recommend getting the Catechism of the United States Constitution. This is how kids were taught the Constitution starting in 1828. This is when uh, de Tocqueville came over to America and said, why do these kids know so much about government? It's because they were taught the constitution. It's kind of a, a um, Socratic way of answering questions. Uh, and if you just uh, do one page a day, I would do this with my kids over breakfast sometime. Uh, so I would recommend getting this to help you understand the constitution and also just have your handy dandy little pocket constitution. I have so many of them around the house. Just carry it with you. Just even if you're not opening it, just carry it on yourself or in your purse to fill the spirit. And at some point you might be inspired to open it up and to read a little bit about this. So girls, as we are studying the Constitution from the viewpoint of the Founding Fathers and their intentions, it helps us to be able to discern truth from error. It helps us to be able to discern headlines. We're like, wait a minute, this is not what the Founders intended a president to govern and legislate through executive orders when we read things in the paper on social media. It's important to remember that only 15% of the Constitution has been changed. So 85% is intact, but we can't repair or restore something that we don't understand. This is why you're here today. This is why we're studying it. The Constitution, I believe, will be one of the tools that God will use to heal this land by those that understand they will be used, I believe, as instruments in his hands to heal this land. Remember in 2 Chronicles um, chapter 7, verse 14, where God says, My people, if they will call upon me and will humble themselves and will seek me and will turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land. And I believe part of the wicked ways of this generation is just our laziness by the citizenry, our uninformed, apathetic ways. We don't even know the constitution. So whatever you tell me it means, I believe you, or, or we're not able to defend it because we don't know it. And I don't think that pleases God because he had a hand in the establishment of this constitution and in this country. So if we will do our part, and, and I'm telling you, I just wanna pat you on the back. You are here, you are learning, you're seeking to understand these inspired and correct principles of the constitution. And as you do that, that is going to justify the heavens for God to intervene and ultimately win this war and help heal our families and our neighborhoods and our communities and our nations. So I salute you girls. Have a wonderful 4th of July. Happy birthday, America, 245 years young. We love it. Let's keep fighting for it so we can have another 245 years. Have a wonderful week. I will see you next week. I'll see you.